Hello, everybody. This is Julian Charles again of the MindRenewed.com, podcasting to you from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. Today is the 19th of March 2013, and welcome to the third interview in the series Does Anybody Really Believe in World Government? in which I am very pleased to be speaking to the theologian Dr. Martin Erdmann. Dr. Erdmann is the Professor of Philosophy at North Greenville University and Director of the Verax Institute in Greer, South Carolina. He has served as Head of New Testament Studies at the State Independent Seminary in Basel, Switzerland, and the Academy of Reformation Theology in Hanover, Germany. He also taught all courses in Biblical Studies at Patrick Henry College in Northern Virginia, and was for several years Senior Scientist at the University Hospital in Basel and Research Fellow at the European Foundation of Clinical Nanomedicine, researching into the ethical implications of nanotechnology. So Dr. Erdmann, thank you very much indeed for sparing time to join me on The Mind Renewed. You're welcome. Now, I said in the introduction that uh, this is the third interview in the series. And as you know, I've so far spoken to Dr. Stanley Monteith and James Corbett. And we've been looking at various globalist organizations and their attempt to move us in the direction of world government. Yes. And I particularly wanted to speak to you because I thought that your book, Building the Kingdom of God on Earth, would add a very interesting dimension to this discussion. But before we get into the detail of your book, could I ask you to tell us a little bit more about yourself, perhaps something about your Christian faith, how you came to be a theologian? Yes, sure. Well, I grew up in a Christian home. I was born in Germany in Stuttgart. And my parents were Christians, and they raised me uh, as a Christian, uh, although obviously you do not become a Christian by just being born in a Christian family. But they tried to model what a Christian life is all about while they were raising me and my sister. And thus I was exposed to the gospel from a very early age. However, I didn't become a Christian until the age of 18. I was reading my Bible, and when I came to the chapter in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, reading about Jesus Christ basically giving his life for me on the cross to atone for my sins. Up to that point, I didn't understand clearly enough that I myself was a sinner. That was basically my main problem. And from one second to another, I realized that, yes, indeed, I was a sinner, and I needed God's forgiveness. I needed to be reconciled to the Almighty. And when reading this chapter in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I repented of my sins. I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord. And from that moment onward, I considered myself to be a true Christian. Mm-hmm. And how did you then come to be a theologian, a professional theologian? Well, it was just basically the continuation of what I had done at that moment. I realized that if this is really the truth, if Jesus Christ was God's son coming into this world, offering his life on the cross so that I can be reconciled with God, well, there is nothing better to tell other people about. Every decision I made from that moment onwards was always prefaced by the thought, how can I be trained in such a way that I can effectively share the gospel with many people? And once I finished high school, I went to the German Missionary Fellowship and did my civil service there. And from then on, I went to the States, did some missionary work at Ohio State University and at different other places. And then ultimately, I went to a Bible college. I realized that I had some ability in the academic field So I went to the States to get my master's degree, 
And when I went to the university in Aberdeen in Scotland to get my second master's degree, and eventually I ended up at Brunel University to get my PhD degree. And when I just wanted to use whatever education I, I got to train pastors and missionaries. And thus I became a theology professor at different seminaries, teaching young students to become missionaries or pastors. Now, I said that your book is called Building the Kingdom of God on Earth. And I suspect that at first sight, I think a lot of people would think, ah, that's referring to God's work in building his kingdom generation after generation through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the subtitle to your book points in a very different direction because it says the church's contribution to martial public support for world order and peace 1919 to 1945, which certainly does not sound like just the preaching of the gospel. So could you introduce us to the main thesis of your book and tell us why it was that you wrote it? Yes, it was a project I had in mind many, many years earlier. I was never thinking of writing my PhD thesis on it, but circumstances led me to that point. I wanted to actually get a PhD in New Testament studies at the University of Aberdeen, but the supervisor at the time, Dr. Ruth Edwards, basically asked me to define what I believe about the Bible. And I, in so many words, I told her that I believe the Bible is God's word, and I truly believe it is inerrant. Once I was done describing the Bible to her, she said, this is the few she hates the most, and she will do whatever is in her power to prevent me from getting my PhD degree under her supervision. And so eventually we came up with a compromise solution. She said, okay, she will allow me to write my Master Theology thesis based on my presupposition that the Bible is God's word, but she will not let me enter the PhD program. I did write my Master Theology thesis under her supervision, but I also realized that the library of the University of Aberdeen was very unique. I also went into the section where all the history books were on display and realized very quickly that the selection of history books, especially in regards to American history, was extremely unique. So what I did was I started researching early 20th century American history on my own. I was also able to go down to the archives and just basically spent almost all my time down in the archives reading one book after another or having access to some original manuscripts while at the same time writing my, my Master of Theology thesis in New Testament studies. Once I was done and successfully completed my studies at the University of Aberdeen, I tried to find a university which would allow me to write my PhD thesis on John Foster Dulles. He used to be the Secretary of State under President Eisenhower. And I did find Brunel University I found a supervisor there who agreed with me to tackle that project to write my thesis on John Foster Dulles. He said he has no knowledge in regards to John Foster Dulles whatsoever. He would agree to take me on as his PhD student, but he would not be of any help to me in in regards to my studies. But I said, well, that would be fine. I would accept the condition. And he accepted me into the program. And I started researching. And then it became fairly clear very early on that the specific thrust of my thesis would be to expose the agenda of the early ecumenical movement, the political agenda of the early ecumenical movement, 
in regards to helping to set up a world government. Well, in this book, you trace back this vision for a world government or a new world order, however we might want to call it. You trace it back to the British Empire mysticism of John Ruskin at Oxford University in the late 19th century. And you speak about his socialism, but also about the influence of Plato on his thinking, basically the idea that the aristocracy should remain in charge. And you say that Ruskin had a tremendous influence on a generation of young men. So could you introduce us to John Ruskin and and say something about the impact that he had. Certainly. Now, John Ruskin is not very well known uh, these days, but during his time, meaning the late 19th century, he was extremely well known. He had a very good reputation in regards to his expertise in the history of art. As a matter of fact, he was this late professor of fine art at Oxford University from 1869 to 1879. And being that professor at Oxford University, he had a huge influence on his students. His lectures were always very well attended, and he had a very unique approach to teaching the history of art, but he spoke much about, well, politics uh, and, and how the British Empire was the best idea of the best institution, the best system of government which mankind could devise up to that point. So he was a very enthusiastic imperialist at the time and thought that this tradition should be brought to all the nations in the world and the British, his students at Oxford University should be the rulers of the British Empire being extended to the rest of the world. And he had a few of his students in particular who were very much influenced by that idea, one of whom was Cecil Rhodes. Although it's not entirely clear if he ever actually visited the lecture by Ruskin himself, but he certainly heard about Ruskin's description of, of a British Empire from other students and from, from some published uh, papers and so on and so forth. And he really took that vision to heart and wanted to put it into practice, wanted to extend the British Empire to the rest of the world. Um, the vision of, of Ruskin, and it's really, as you said correctly, it's a platonic vision. It is the vision of Plato, which he described in his book, The Republic, where he describes philosopher kings being the absolute ruler of a city-state. Obviously, it was Athens, but Ruskin translated that vision into the British Empire, and he wanted the Oxford students, once they graduated, to be the administrators of the British Empire. And obviously, he wanted to extend it uh, into a world government, ultimately. So in that sense, John Ruskin had a huge influence on the history of the British Empire at that time up to our time. And another person upon whom Ruskin had a great deal of influence, I believe, was Lord Alfred Milner. Yes. And is it right that Milner's followers then formed the Round Table Group? Could you explain the significance of this Round Table Group and give us some idea of its philosophy? Yes, certainly. Well, once again, Lord Alfred Milner was a very influential, very powerful man. And he became High Commissioner in South Africa. He formed a group of young administrators around himself during his time as High Commissioner. And other people called that group Milner's Kindergarten because all these young administrators, all of them were graduates from Oxford University, looked very young to the people around them. So they called that group Milner's Kindergarten. 
But these graduates were very sharp individuals. They were highly talented and basically Milner infused into them a very high ideal in regards to preserving and extending the British Empire. And he basically formed them into expert administrators during that time. Almost all of them kept up friendship with Milner up to his death, basically. Out of that group of administrators grew the Roundtable Group, because these young administrators, Lionel Curtis and some of the others, they formed the so-called Roundtable Group. It was a group which wanted to change the British Empire into an imperial federation. First focused on all the British dominions, and then obviously extended to the rest of the world. So what they did was they wanted to unify the different dominions and they first unified the different states in South Africa. Once they were finished with that, some of these administrators went to Canada, went to New Zealand, went to the other dominions of the British Empire and set up local so-called round table groups. And these local groups were then charged with a duty to promote this idea of imperial federation because they thought that this was the only way how the British Empire could actually be preserved and extended into the future. They didn't see much hope in regards to the viability of the British Empire as it was set up at the time. England ruling the dominions with England as the main center of it. They wanted to have a federation where the dominions would basically lose their status as dominions and wanted to put the dominions into a federal system. Well, they were not very successful, as you know. This idea of a project of setting up a British Empire as a federation did never come about. Ultimately, the Roundtable Group changed its perspective, changed its agenda to setting up the Commonwealth. As a matter of fact, Lionel Curtis, one of those early members of the Milner's Kindergarten and then one of the main organizers of roundtable groups, became a history professor at Oxford University. And during that time, he came up with the idea of a British Commonwealth. And then, obviously, as you know, the British Commonwealth idea caught on and the, the empire was changed into a commonwealth. Mm -hmm. Well, I was interested that you mentioned Lionel G. Curtis there. Would his view have been the hope that that commonwealth would nevertheless still grow into some form of federation of pooled sovereignty between these states? Well, in some ways, but I think I need to explain a little bit more why they changed their agenda. Fairly early, once they wanted to set up these dominions as federal states, they realized that it would not be possible to do so. One reason was just a growing nationalistic sentiment among the nationals in these different dominions, like in Canada, like in New Zealand and different other parts of the world, even in South Africa. The other reason, which to my mind is even more important, was the realization that the British Empire, even if it would turn into an imperial federation, would not be the ideal vehicle to set up a world government. The world government idea was always at the top of their thinking. This was always what they truly wanted to accomplish. They never wanted to stop just with the imperial federation. They wanted to use the British Empire and then the Imperial Federation 
as a basis of a world government. Now, just to be absolutely clear about this, this is not speculation on your part. You have the documents to prove from their own writings that this is what they intended. Exactly, yes. I, I, I looked at the writings of a roundtable group. They had different publications, and some of the main members of a roundtable group published books and published pamphlets on their own. So, as a matter of fact, it's really easy to look into these publications and to come up with a very clear picture in regards to their objectives. The main idea was to set up a world government, ultimately, using the British Empire or Imperial Federation to do so. But they realized it would not work out as they had envisioned it to be. And the main problem they realized was the United States of America would not be willing to come back into the British Empire. Since the Americans, as you know, had pulled off a successful rebellion or revolution in the late 18th century, they did not want to subject themselves again under British rule. And this was the main impediment to using the British Empire as the nucleus of a world government because the most important country, meaning the United States of America, would not be willing to be part of that setup. And thus, the idea of a world government based on the British Empire would not work out. They needed to convince the United States to become part of a world government. And they realized they needed to use a different approach. And the other approach then was to use the League of Nations for that purpose at the end of the First World War. Mm -hmm. And obviously uh, it didn't work out in regards to the League of Nations, but that's a, that's a different story. But the main point is they actually turned around to destroy the British Empire. As I said, first they wanted to use the British Empire as their foundation of a world government. Once they realized it would not be realistic, they actually turned around and started to dismantle, destroy the British Empire. And thus that idea of a British Commonwealth came into being because they realized that the British Empire, as it was set up, would not allow them to establish a world government. And then the League of Nations itself failed to provide any stable basis for world peace. So that just fueled their internationalism even more, did it not? Yes. They realized that the League of Nations would be a better idea as the nucleus of a world government. And if you know a little bit about history, you know that the Versailles Peace Conference at the conclusion of the First World War, meaning in the year 1919, didn't turn out as some of the participants had hoped. Woodrow Wilson, the American president at the time, was very much in favor of setting up a League of Nations and he wanted to bring America into such a coalition or a league as the first step towards a world government. But there were two senators in America who totally opposed America's participation in a League of Nations. It is actually very interesting to note that these two senators, William Bora was one of them and Henry Lodge was another, were actually very much in favor of a League of Nations, but they despised Woodrow Wilson as president, huh. as a politician. And because Woodrow Wilson was so much in favor of bringing America into the League of Nations, they opposed the idea, not because they were opposed to the idea itself, but because they didn't like Woodrow Wilson. Basically, America never signed the Versailles Peace Treaty and thus did not become automatically a member of the League of Nations as all the others 
became, who signed the peace treaty, except Germany, of course. Germany became a member later on. But America never signed the peace treaty and thus never became a member. And that really broke Woodrow Wilson's heart. He went back to America and, and campaigned. He traveled the country in a train and campaigned for America's participation. And that not only broke his heart, but also his health. And he had a brain hemorrhage and was basically incapacitated uh, for the rest of his life until he died in 1924. And once it became very clear to the American delegates at the Versailles Peace Conference that America would not become a member of the League of Nations. They actually met at the Hotel Majestic in Paris on May the 30th, 1919, to come up with an alternative scheme. Is this where the uh, Royal Institute of International Affairs comes into the story? That is exactly uh, the point. It was not called Royal Institute of International Affairs, but just Institute of International Affairs. And the individuals who came together at that meeting at the Hotel Majestic were the British, or at least some of the main British delegates to the Peace Conference, as well as some of the American delegates, including John Foster Dulles, for example. But the one who basically set it up was Colonel Mendel House. He was the personal advisor of Woodrow Wilson, and he had earlier set up the so-called Inquiry, which was a group of experts in America who eventually went to Paris Peace Conference. And members of that group, the Inquiry, under the leadership of House, Colonel House, and some of the British delegates came together at that hotel to come up with an alternative scheme. And the idea behind the new scheme was to set up two organizations which would be independent but still cooperate with each other, one in the British Arts, the other in America. The branch in the British Arts was called Institute of National Affairs, and the group which would go to America became known as the Council on Foreign Relations in 1921. They were not called that initially, but they merged with an already existing organization in the state two years later, and that other organization was called the Council on Foreign Relations, and must they adopted that name of that other organization. So the Council on Foreign Relations in America and the Institute of International Affairs were basically two separate organizations, but working hand-in-hand hand to bring about a world government. Mm -hmm. The way how they did it was they realized that the most important component or the most important aspect of setting up a world government would be to convince the American population. And when they discussed the best possible way how to do that, how to accomplish that, and they realized that they needed to go to the American public directly. And the most effective way how they thought this could be accomplished was by going to the universities and basically getting the professors on their side and the professors would then convince their students that America should give up its national sovereignty and become part of a world government. And the second leg of that strategy was basically to go to the churches and use the churches to propagandize the American population or public in regards to merits of world government. Mm -hmm. And this is where my research interests came in. I wanted to understand how the roundtable group, 
with its extension of the Institute of National Affairs in Great Britain and the Council of Foreign Relations in America, succeeded in getting the churches on their side and using the churches as the vehicle to spread the message of setting up a world government. And they did this by infiltrating the liberal Christian ecumenical movement. And the way that they did it, that you explain in your book, is that they did it by reinterpreting this message that is in the Bible of the kingdom of God, but having a a kind of secularized version of that message, which tended to fit with the liberal Christian ecumenical movement. Could you explain how that reinterpretation of the kingdom of God worked in their thinking? Once again, you are correct in stating that they approached the liberal churches, the mainline churches, primarily the Presbyterian church, because some of the delegates and some of the members of the Council on Foreign Relations were members also of the Presbyterian Church in America. And the Presbyterian Church in America was very well established. It was not yet a liberal church as such, but it was moving in the direction of becoming a liberal church. The changeover from a predominantly conservative denomination to a liberal denomination happened in the year 1929. But just a few years earlier, there was a very strong debate going on within the church between these two factions. And the liberal wing basically hired John Foster Dulles to be their advocate. And ultimately, they prevailed. They took over the Presbyterian Church. And when they wanted to use the the Presbyterian Church as their campground, so to speak, to reach out to some of the other liberal churches, like the Methodists, like the Lutherans, like the Episcopalians, and then convince the leadership of these different denominations to set up what became known as the ecumenical movement. They wanted to unify the different denominations as a showcase to prove to the politicians that unification would be possible. So in essence, what I'm saying is the ecumenical movement was not set up only to unify the churches. The unification of the churches was meant to be a showcase for the unification of nations, to convince the politicians to unify the nations of the world and and set up a world government. And so I get the impression that the the message of Christ, the call to self-forgetfulness and uh, obedience, was was reinterpreted as a self-forgetfulness of sovereignty, that it was national sovereignty, which was the big evil that needed to be overcome. Is that a fair way of putting it, do you think? Yeah, this is exactly how it was. Yes, this is exactly the message they put across. It was obviously intimately linked to what became known as a social gospel. Mm. And the social gospel was really never a truly Christian message or truly Christian movement. Yes, they incorporated certain ethical standards, I would say, helping the poor and getting the downtrodden on their feet and things like that. But the main idea was that the evil which caused all the problems in the world, especially the wars, The evil was caused by national sovereignty because each nation wanted to exert its own rights and bigger nations wanted to conquer smaller nations and then occupy them and rob rob their national treasures and things like that. So once national sovereignty would be abolished, it would also mean that wars would not uh, happen again because then the main motivation for having a war with some other nation would be given up. 
That was the argument. But I personally don't believe that this is very convincing. Because if you look into the biographies of some of the main leaders who said we need to have a world government as the only chance to have world peace, some of these main leaders and John Foster Dulles being one of them and being one of the most conspicuous ones, were also some of the individuals who were actually very much involved in setting up another world war, meaning the Second World War. So the argument which I put in front of the public, especially the American public, to give up sovereignty in order to have world peace is not very convincing in my eyes. Because especially John Foster Dulles was very much in favor of national socialism in Germany. As a matter of fact, his law firm, Sullivan and, and Cromwell, which was one of the most prestigious law firms in America at the time, and he was the senior partner of that law firm, meaning the leader of that law firm. That law firm had an office in Berlin up to, I believe, 1939. And John Foster Dulles himself traveled to Germany at least once per year to conduct his business with the German National Socialist government, meaning Hitler. And thus, I don't believe that his argument in favor of world peace is very convincing. But is it right that he thought that when he looked at National Socialism there in Germany, he was looking at it from the point of view of someone who was saying, well, the socialism is working there and the nationalism is just a phase. It's an unfortunate phase which will be transcended in the future. But here we have an example of a socialism that's working, which is perhaps analogous to the, the kind of socialism he was looking for in the churches. Is there anything to be said for that view? I would agree with, with your description, but he was certainly not naive. He was not an idealist. He was a realist. He very much understood the true nature of National Socialism at the time, being a lawyer doing business with the National Socialist government. Mm. And he did it against the wishes of some of the other partners in his own law firm. One of them was Alan Dulles, his own brother. He overruled the objections of some of the other partners, including his own brother, uh, to do business with, with Hitler. And he prevailed to such an extent that even after 1941, as you know, uh, the, the attack on Pearl Harbor happened on the 7th of December 1941. After America had become a, a member of the Allies in the Second World War, he still continued doing business with Hitler. And, and this is extremely disconcerting to me because he became the lawyer of the alien custodian administration in America, which basically took over the possessions, the factories of some of the main chemical firms in Germany, the IG Farben cartel or IG Farben cartel. And that chemical company cartel had some firms in America, and the Alien Custodian Administration took over these companies in America once America had entered into fighting against the Germans. And John Fostoyes became the lawyer to the commissioner of the Alien Custodian Administration. And in that position as the lawyer, he made sure that these chemical firms in the United States produced war material, mostly explosives, and shipped these explosives to South America, usually Argentina. And when it was told to the Germans that they can pick up these 
explosives from these states in South America and use them against America. And this during the time when America was at war with Germany. And John Foster Dawes made sure that Germany would get these explosives. So it was, in my book, in my understanding, this was high treason of the highest order. And he got away with it. So he showed his true colors, his true sympathies in regards to National Socialism and in a very obvious way. As a matter of fact, later on, after the Second World War, some famous investigative journalists picked up on that story and accused him of being a collaborator with the National Socialist regime during the Second World War. So would you see that this is a, a window onto his view of socialism then for the world government structure? Yes. That really this all connects back to John Ruskin's view with this platonic view of the aristocrats at the top and those who are benefiting from socialism on the, the lowest level are the little people. This seems to fit very well with the national socialist structure. Yeah, exactly. Well, he, he wrote a book of the title of War, Peace and Change, published in 1939 immediately prior to the outbreak of the Second World War. And in this book, which was his most famous, he basically said that the ideal social structure for America were either National Socialism or Communism. At that time, this meant Communism as it was set up in Russia under Stalin. So either Stalin's Communism or Hitler's National Socialism were portrayed as the ideal social structure for the United States as he envisioned it for the future. And I believe he never abandoned that goal. I believe this was the reason why he supported National Socialism during the Second World War. I believe this was the reason why he was extremely uh, in favor of whatever Stalin did later on. And yes, the point is socialism. He wanted to bring socialism to the United States. And he said it. He wrote it in his book. It's not something I made up. He publicized it as broadly as he possibly could. And I believe he never gave up that idea, even when he became Secretary of State under President Eisenhower. But if we go back to the time which I describe in my book, it was extremely obvious what he wanted to do. And yes, world government should be a socialist world government. Also, already at the time when Lord Alfred Milner was still in charge of a roundtable group. Lord Alfred Milner was a dedicated socialist, always trying to get rid of a democratic system in the British government. He was always trying to bring socialism to Great Britain. So even during the early phase of that project of bringing world government to this world, it was always under the, the colors of socialism. And would you agree that that vision of socialism is best characterized as a technocratic socialism, so that you have those who are fit to rule and know what they're doing at the top? Yes. Would you say that's? Would you say that is really the view? Well, this is this is really, this is my conviction. This is this is what I came to believe, after having done mm. some further studies. It was not necessarily clear initially. It was not clear to my mind that it was a technocratic sort of socialism. It was socialism, I was pretty clear on that point, but what kind of socialism it was, this was not entirely clear to me. Was it national socialism? Maybe, maybe not. Was it communism? Maybe, maybe not. So I was not entirely uh, clear on that point. And in 2008 or 2009, I, I can't recall the exact date, 
an American friend of mine who did similar research in the early 1970s got in contact with me and basically mentioned to me the idea of a technocracy as being the ideal socialistic system which these proponents of world government had in mind. Would this be Patrick Wood? That would be Patrick Wood, correct. Mm-hmm. He's a dear friend of mine. Patrick Wood mentioned to me that I should look into technocracy as the socialistic branch, so to speak, which was in the mind of these proponents of world government. And that was something that was growing in the yes. 1930s, wasn't it? Yes, correct. It was it was a large movement here in the United States in the, in the early 1930s, but it totally collapsed. And I did remember that I had a book on the history of a technocratic movement in my hands, and I flipped through the pages and I read some passages and basically came to the point where the collapse was described and I thought, well, this has nothing to do with what I was researching. And so I, I closed the book and brought it back and never wasted a second thought on it until, as I said, Patrick Woods said to me, well, look into technocracy again. Now you have done all the research. Tell me what you think. And so I, I was once again motivated to look into it. And I did remember what Dr. Mike Pierce had written in his foreword. And the very first two sentences in his foreword were basically, this is technocracy. Um, Just basically summarizing what he said in in my words. He said, what I had written and researched in regards to my book was the history of technocracy and nothing else. And I had to agree. I had to agree with Patrick Woods. I had to agree with Dr. Mike Pierce. Dr. Mike Pierce was exactly correct in what he had written in his foreword, and I didn't understand it correctly at the time when I published the book in 2005. So you'd written about that subject, but you hadn't actually used that particular word. I never used the words once in the entire book. And the entire book from the first page to the last was about the history of technocracy. (laughs) So that was a strange realization or a strange discovery to me as well. And Dr. Mark Pierce had understood it much better than I did. I think at this point, would it be possible just to give a, a brief definition of what technocracy means? Well, technocracy is a very strange animal. It has many different facets. It has a very colorful history. And it's it's very difficult to actually define it. However, the main idea of a technocracy is that it is a political as well as an economic system. As a political system, it is a pure dictatorship. It is a totalitarian system. So those who rule in a technocracy are not democratically voted in politicians. They are appointed in some ways or they appoint themselves to be the rulers. The best contemporary example would be Italy. Nearly two years ago, Mario Monti was designated. He was not voted into office. He was designated by the European Union to be the Prime Minister of Italy. I think that's uh, the point at which many people heard the word technocrat, I should think, for the first time. Exactly. And, And Mario Monti was not shy in saying that his entire cabinet is a technocratic cabinet. There was not one politician who became a member of his cabinet. Mm-hmm. And the idea there is that they are the experts. Exactly. And this this is the second thought. Well, one is, it's a pure dictatorship. The other one is, those who rule are so-called experts in whatever. They can be experts in finance, they can be experts in any kind of industry, but they have to be some type of experts. So these are the two main components. However, 
If you look very closely at the history of technocratic movement, you will come to realize that it was conceptualized from the very beginning as a religion. And that component is often left out by those who write about the history of technocracy. But it is very obvious if you look at the two philosophers, and they were French philosophers, and the two philosophers who came up with the idea of a technocracy. The first one was Henri Saint-Simon, or in English, Henry Saint-Simon. And the other was his private secretary, Auguste Kant. The, the philosophy of, of a movement which Henri Saint-Simon had brought into being was called Saint-Simonism. And the philosophy Auguste Kant came up with was called positivism. So either one of these two terms uh, could be used as a synonym for technocracy. Uh, you know that British philosophy was very much dominated by logical positivists. As a matter of fact, almost for 50 years, logical positivism was basically the only philosophy which was popular in England in the early part of the 20th century. Yes, I remember Bertrand Russell speaking about this in uh, one of his books where he actually warns about this positivistic attitude becoming extreme and, and warns about what, what a, a dreadful world that could turn into. Yes, correct. So technocracy as a term is not often used and the, the idea that it is really a religion is also more hidden when revealed. But if you look at the last book title of Henri Saint-Simon, which was a book which was published in the year of his death in 1825. The title of his last book was called in French, The New Christianity. And if you read this book, you will understand that Henri Saint-Simon set up his system, which eventually evolved into a technocracy. He set it up as a rival religion to Christianity. Now, I don't know anything about this, but my suspicion is that it may connect with a post-millennial vision of the world. Would I be right in that suspicion? Yes, and not so much in regards to Henri Saint-Simon, uh -huh. even though, obviously, there were others, many others, including John Foster Dulles, who were very much in favor of a post-millennial outlook in regards to Christian eschatology. And what that meant in, in very simple terms was that the Christian churches or the Christians have been charged by Jesus Christ to set up a kingdom of God on earth, meaning a world's government of sorts where the Christians would be the ruling elite. And once they have set up that kingdom of God, meaning a world government with Christians in, in power, at that moment, Jesus Christ would come back, but not prior to the success of the Christian churches to set up such a world system. Do you think that John Foster Dulles himself was actually a believing Christian? My personal opinion is he was never a believing Christian. He, he called himself a Christian. He was the son of a theology professor. But if you look into the theology of his father, you will very quickly realize it was liberalism. And the liberalism obviously came out very strongly in regards to John Foster Dulles' expression of Christianity as well. And even his son, Avery Dulles, later on after his father, John Foster Dulles, had died, basically said that his father was never a Christian himself. He pretended to be, but he just used the Bible more or less as a rule book of morals. But being a lawyer in New York City, he was a man ruled by pragmatism. 
So whatever mm. brought in money into his law firm, this is what he did, regardless of the question if it was small or not. And the very fact that he supported the National Socialist government, even during the time when America was at war with Germany, I believe that speaks volumes in regards to his pragmatism and his moral standards. So we're seeing really a kind of Christian um, instrumentalism, really, and not, not a, a real uh, fully fledged believing Christianity, but a, a use of a particular version of post-millennial Christianity as something that can be used as a tool to bring in the message of this world government. Yes, it's also called secularized post-millennialism to differentiate it from what some true Christians would believe in regards to that doctrine. Obviously, there were some true Christians like uh, B.B. Warfield or J. Gresham Machen or even Jonathan Edwards. All of them were post-millennialists, but their type of post-millennialism was very different from a type of secularized post-millennialism which John Foster Wallace believed. And you have great concerns, don't you, that this kind of thinking has found its way even into the modern evangelical church. And in some of your presentations and interviews that you've given, you point to influences like the latter rain movement, which should perhaps be characterized as a, a cult, really. And various individuals, I think you've pointed to people like C. Peter Wagner. Um, you've even pointed to Rick Warren as people who are influenced by this kind of thinking in some way. Can you explain what your concern is about what's happening in evangelicalism today? Yes, well, this was really surprising to me. Once I was done with my studies and once I started teaching at different seminaries in Germany and Switzerland, I became aware of some of the trends within evangelicalism itself, especially in the missions movement. And I looked into modern trends in regards to evangelical missions. And all of a sudden, I don't know when it dawned on me, but all of a sudden I realized that what I had studied and researched in regards to the liberal churches prior to the Second World War was being furthered by evangelical missionaries and theology professors and pastors. They used the same slogans like building the kingdom of God on earth. And it was almost surreal. I, I almost couldn't believe my own eyes when I saw these evangelical leaders using the same language, using the same expressions and terms, which I had researched in regards to the liberal churches and, and what they wanted to accomplish. And you have to understand, I believe we, we addressed that early on, that the slogan, building the kingdom of God on earth, when it was used by the liberal theologians, had the meaning of setting up a world government, a secular world government. And all of a sudden, I heard that slogan being mentioned by, for example, Rick Warren. And I looked into his sermons and, and books and so on and so forth and realized that what I had known to be true in regards to the liberals was almost word for word true now for the evangelicals. And that really surprised me when I discovered it for the first time. A key individual in that discovery, I believe, was the management theorist Peter Drucker. Am I right? Uh, yeah, correct. Let me give you a little bit more background in regards to it. Mm. Because this, this is how God more or less showed me what was wrong with the modern church growth movement or the church transformation movement. And yes, Peter Drucker was the main brain behind that operation. I, I gave a paper at the University of South Carolina in the year 2004, 
But I was also very, very interested in listening in to some of the other presentations, especially one presentation by a philosopher at the University of South Carolina by the name of George Kuth. And he, I had met George Kuth earlier on, and he confessed to me to be a believing Christian and things like that. So I was, I was highly motivated to listen to his presentation. And just in about every second sentence of his very long presentation, he mentioned general systems theory. And at that time, I had no background knowledge in regards to general systems theory whatsoever. So once I was back in, in Switzerland, the very first thing I did was I typed in general systems theory into Google. And I'm not kidding. The very first link which came up was a link to Rick Warren's Saddleback Church in America. And I, I just couldn't believe my eyes. I thought, what does general systems theory have to do with Rick Warren's church in California? And obviously, I started reading up on it. And all of a sudden, I realized that general systems theory was the philosophy behind everything Rick Warren did. As a matter of fact, he also became a member, still is a member, of the Council on Foreign Relations. I see, really? Yes. You can go to the website of the Council on Foreign Relations uh, cfr.org go to the section where all the members are listed go to w and you will find rick warren's name listed as a matter of fact i even have a, a videotaped interview which he did when he was a participant at the world economic forum in davos a few years ago and in that videotaped interview he speaks about his peace plan and in the middle of it he just stops and says, well, by the way, I, I say it in my words again, by the way, I am a member of a council on foreign relations. And then he stops again, and then he continues his explanation in regards to the peace plan. And that very clearly showed to me that he is very much in tune with what the council on foreign relations wanted to accomplish historically, meaning setting up a world government, using the churches for that purpose primarily, and in the context of explaining the, his peace plan, it became very obvious to me that he wanted to let other people know that his membership in the Council of Foreign Relations and what he does in regards to the so-called peace plan was furthering the agenda of a Council of Foreign Relations, which is, as I said, setting up a real government. So these evangelical leaders take that agenda, which the liberals pursued up to the end of the Second World War, do you think it would be fair to say that there's a possibility that he is doing this out of good conscience himself, that he thinks that he's giving Christianity a platform in which to show itself to the world, but that nevertheless in doing that he is likely to be used by those who have this idea of a new world order? Could one develop an apologetic for him along those lines? Well, I, I tell you my opinion. Obviously there are others who do not share my opinion. But my opinion is expressed on the background of having done extensive research in regards to what Rick Warren truly wants to accomplish. As a matter of fact, you may know that I wrote an entire book in German on Rick Warren, Der Griff zur Macht, and the translation of the title is Grasping for Power. And the power aspect is world government. In this book, which is nearly 300 pages long, I try to make a very strong case that Rick Warren is one of the leading proponents of using the evangelical churches to bring that liberal vision of a world government to fruition in our time. During the time he was very popular, let's say 2004, 2005, even 2006, 
he came out very strongly in promoting world reconciliation and peace and his broken peace plan and things like that. But if you look at it carefully enough, you see Peter Drago's philosophy behind it. Is this the three-legged stool which he talks about? Yes, the three-legged stool, correct. That does sound very worrying indeed. Could you explain how that works? Yes, but everything goes back to Peter Drago. And Rick Warren has no qualms about calling Peter Drago his main mentor. He said he often went to his home, was basically sitting at the feet of Peter Drago, even though Peter Drago, in another videotape interview, uh, basically said this was not the case. And if Peter Drago, in that videotaped interview, shortly before he died, he was asked, are you a Christian? If Rick Warren is following new philosophy, are you a Christian? And Peter Drucker point blank said, I am not a Christian. All what I was interested in doing was, I basically looked out of the window and I saw all these mega churches popping up in America. And I realized the great influence these evangelical mega churches had on American society. And I had an ingenious idea. I thought to myself, if I could have access to these churches, if I could have access to the pastors of these mega churches, I could change American society according to my philosophy. And his philosophy is communitarianism, which is, in essence, it's nothing else but technocracy. It's just a different term. I can change American society using the evangelical churches. And this is exactly what he did. He got in contact with some of these mega pastors. He did it via the help of Bob Buford, who was a cable TV owner, who sold his business, got extremely rich, set up a non-profit organization called Leadership Network in Dallas, Texas. And Bob Buford was a personal friend of Peter Trucker, and they, both of them got together, invited about 50 pastors, evangelical pastors, to come to Dallas and to sit in on some of the teaching sessions of Peter Trucker. And they called these pastors in on a periodic basis. And during these sessions, Peter Drucker influenced them with his philosophy. And as you may guess, some of the main megachurch pastors who became extremely well-known were participants in these early sessions of the Leadership Network. Yes. You say that Rick Warren was clearly influenced by Peter Drucker, and particularly by this three-legged stool idea. Yes. That is the idea, am I right, that this is a cooperation between government, business, we might say corporations, and various social organizations all cooperating together to form ultimately some form of the best way to run the world. Yes. Yes. That strikes me as a very worrying model. Yeah, you are correct in, in, in describing the three-legged stool model, and it, it goes back to Peter Drucker, which was his main model of what an ideal society should look like, and it's the interaction and close cooperation between three different sectors of society. The first sector is the business world, the second sector is the political world, and the third sector is the social world of the non-profit organizations, in particular the churches. So he wanted to set up a system where all these three different components of society would closely work together. And the objective was, based on the communitarian philosophy of Peter Drago, to bring socialism to the world in the form of a world government. 
and it does strike me as being essentially technocratic in structure. Yes, it is very technocratic. This is really, it's a perfect definition of technocracy, correct? It, it seems absolutely incredible to me that Christians should be cooperating with this. What on earth has happened to the doctrine of original sin? I mean, understood in the sense that human beings, I'm afraid, are just corruptible, and something like that is bound to go wrong if you don't have democratic constraint in the system. Yeah, I personally would say that that idea of real government or communitarianism or this three-legged stool model, this has nothing, nothing whatsoever to do with true Christianity. In my mind, it is the very opposite of what true Christianity is all about. That we believe that Jesus Christ will come back, and if you are a premillennialist, I am a premillennialist, if you are one too, you believe that Jesus Christ will set up his perfect kingdom following his second coming. But he will do it. It's not human beings. Because, as you rightly noted, human beings are sinful. And whatever they do will in some ways be tainted by sin. And if they have that utopian ambition of setting up a perfect world government, the likelihood is very high that they will create hell on earth rather than heaven on earth. I think one could be forgiven for thinking that this could possibly move in the direction of uh, Revelation 13 rather than Revelation 21. Exactly. This is what I believe too. Ultimately, the Antichrist will take hold of that system and we will have a world government under the rule of the Antichrist. And obviously, he will be judged by Jesus Christ when Jesus Christ will come back. So I believe all these Schemes to set up a utopian society, a world government, which the liberal churches were pursuing, which some of the evangelical leaders are pursuing at, at the moment. All of this, to my mind, is basically a preliminary movement which will finally merge with the anti-Christian world government, which will come on the scene as it is described in Revelation 13. Yes, absolutely right. That warning is there, and we should not be cooperating with anything that could move in that direction. I absolutely agree with you. Um, could you tell people how they could find out more about your work? Because you have, I think you have more than one website, don't you? Yes, I do. Two websites, one in German, one in English, and they are called Auraria. A-U-R-A-R-I-A. Auraria. Dot E-U or dot U-S. And on these two websites, I publish articles and also some videos which I produced to explain further what technocracy is all about, both its religious aspect as well as its political and economic aspects. And obviously, these sites are set up to warn about technocracy. I'm not promoting it. I'm warning not to get involved in it. And and what is really sad to me, to my mind, technocracy is a really anti-Christian totalitarian system. It will not allow true Christians to exist if such a system is set up. The really sad part of it is that many Christians are involved in promoting such a system, trying to bring such a system to their country and, and to the world ultimately. I hasten to add that most of the Christians who are involved in some of these movements have no idea that this is what they do. I will also add that most of the leaders, such as Rick Warren, surely know what they are all about, what their true objectives are. 
But uh, w- would it be fair to say that even those leaders don't understand the dangers from an es- eschatological point of view, that it could in fact lead in the direction of an anti-Christian system? That does seem to be very difficult to understand how somebody could be a prominent Christian leader, otherwise seeming quite legitimate as a leader and yet hold views that are antithetical to Christianity. I I would have thought that they would have been deceived in that. No, I I would agree with you on that point. Mm. I don't believe they are doing what they do with the specific purpose of destroying Christianity. I, I do not believe that. But I surely would say, as I did say, that, for example, Rigwan is trying to set up a world government. He thinks it's a Christian world government. He thinks Christians will be in power. This is the whole idea of dominionism. He's part of a dominionist movement. This is just that version of postmillennialism, as I explained it early on, that Christians need to set up a perfect society, world society, with Christians being the rulers of that society. I believe this is what kind of future vision Rick Warren pursues. I'm pretty sure he doesn't do what he does with the idea that eventually the Antichrist will sit on the throne. No. But ultimately, whatever he does will be a great help to the Antichrist once he takes over. And you also mentioned Patrick Wood. Would you think it would be a good idea for people to find out about technocracy in particular from his works, his websites? Yes. He has a website called augustforecast.com. It's a commercial website, I have to say, but he does publish articles and gives interviews. He wrote two best-selling books on the Trilateral Commission in the early 70s. So, yes, some of the information he gives out freely to whoever is interested in that topic. He also produced a DVD of two of his lectures, which is Apostasy in Motion, and he addresses some of the same topics which we have addressed in this interview as well. It goes back to the technocratic movement in the early 30s, 1930s, what they wanted to accomplish. And let me just uh, mention one thought. There are many ideas I could mention, but one thought, perhaps the most important thought these early technocratic leaders were pursuing, it's the thought of changing the currency system from a price-based currency system to an energy-based currency system, also called carbon credits or carbon currency which is already introduced in Europe, it's introduced in the UK, it's introduced here in the United States, so it's not something which we still have to wait for, for its implementation, but it's not yet implemented on the consumer level. And this very much fits with the climate change agenda being manipulated, exactly. not for, for non-scientific reasons. Exactly, well, this, this is why the climate change movement has come into being, to eventually clear the ground, so to speak, for the introduction of a carbon currency. And once that is introduced, the idea of savings will be abolished. The carbon-based currency is a currency which has an expiration date on it. It's like mobile phone minutes. If you don't use them up at the end of a month, they just disappear. And the same idea is pursued with a carbon currency you will be given X number of carbon credits at the beginning of a month. And if you don't use them up, they just disappear, they expire. And at the end of a month, you don't have anything left. And when you are again dependent on the government to give you another allotment of carbon credits. 
So it is just a, well, the idea is that it's the perfect distribution system. Exactly, yes. Yeah, the, the perfect control system. Because if you cannot save anything, you are utterly dependent on the government to give you these credits. Otherwise, you cannot exist. Now, this system has not yet been put in place, but this is where it's going. And thus, I'm, I'm warning people not to buy into it or to oppose it. And that's the purpose of my two websites. Absolutely. And I very much hope to have the opportunity to speak to Patrick Wood about this in more detail. But for the moment, may I say, Dr. Edmund, it has been wonderful to have you on the podcast. And you have certainly added an extra dimension to this subject that uh, I think is something that's not often talked about. So thank you very much indeed for sparing the time to talk to me on The Mind Renewed. Oh, you're welcome. It was my pleasure to be on your show.